Uh, I just want to start off by asking all of you a question. How many of you have ever seen uh, on TV a commercial for uh, a website called Ancestry.com? Has anyone ever seen that before? Okay. It's one of those commercials that really does a good job of capturing your attention, right? So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Ancestry.com, it is a website that provides people with all sorts of information about their genealogy. And so if you're watching this commercial, it begins by telling you this story about a person who logs onto their website, right? Is logged onto their website and types in their name and starts providing all sorts of information about themselves. And as they do that, the website starts producing this family tree for them, right? And all of a sudden, all sorts of things start popping up. Pictures and newspaper articles and marriage licenses, all sorts of information from their ancestors from hundreds of years ago. And in just a matter of a few minutes, this guy who was sitting in front of this computer that had no clue about anything about his background and his history is now given rich details about his bloodline. And why this commercial is so great is because you sit here watching this commercial and you can't help but wonder what sort of things that Ancestry.com could tell you about your own background, right? I mean, imagine seeing the marriage license of your great-great-grandparents. Or imagine that you could uh, log on and to be able to see a signature from a logbook from Ellis Island. It would be amazing, right? And I don't even think it's just me, right? I think that all of us are intrigued by this thought of learning more about our past. In fact, two million different people have logged on to Ancestry.com. Two million different people. Every month they pay like $14.95 to keep this account and keep finding out as much information as they can about their ancestors. The website is worth over $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion for Ancestry.com, all because people realize the importance of knowing our genealogy, of knowing our past. Because we realize that the stories of those in our past help us to better understand even our own story, right? It helps us to answer questions like, why do I look the way that I do? Or when exactly did I come to this country? Or when did my family come to this country? Or maybe even, when did I come to this particular city? Or maybe, why do I have this certain personality, this particular personality? How did all of this happen? Because you see, you and I, we realize that we don't just live in a vacuum, right? Decisions that were made by people 10 generations before us truly do have an impact on the way that we live our lives today. Think about that for a second. That's a fascinating thought, right? And if it's true, if it's actually a true thought, the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, how far back do we really need to go? I mean, what is the earliest generation that has lived that actually has had an impact on my life and on your life? I think it's a good question to ask, a legitimate question for us to ask. And in fact, if we were to ask that question, uh, I think the Bible would give us a pretty particular answer. I think the scriptures would take us all the way back to the first person, to the first one that ever lived on this earth. It would take us back to Adam. We would learn that the life and decisions of Adam have literally impacted every single one of our own lives, that his life has impacted our own story, that Adam 
is actually a part of all of our genealogies. That if we, if you and I truly want to know who you are, you need to know who Adam is. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look into the scriptures to discover the story of this first man, Adam, and figure out how he became a part of our family tree. Before we do that, let's take a moment just to pray together. God, as we turn our attention to your word, we are reminded this morning that it is not simply a book that's good for us to study. It's not simply a text that was written thousands of years ago that has no relevance to our lives. Your word, the word itself tells us that God's word is living and active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it is able to pierce us to the core of who we are, that your word in fact tells us who we are, and it tells us even a greater story of who you are, and that all of that makes all the difference. So I pray, God, even as we take a look at this story this morning, this probably very familiar story to us this morning, I pray that we would not get lost in familiarity, but that you would renew to us this story in a way that we would once again see who you are, that we would once again be convicted of who we are, and that we would turn to you. No preacher can do that. Not a well-delivered sermon can do that. It is your spirit, the same spirit that wrote the scriptures, the same spirit who abides in those who have trusted in you that accomplishes that work. So we are depending on your spirit to do that. Please answer our prayer. Hear us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so Adam's story begins in Genesis chapter 1. Right? Now, even if you've never read the Bible before, if there's a chance that you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never opened up the Bible before, even if that's the case, chances are that you're probably familiar with the story. Right? It's the story of God creating the world. And so for six days, what we read is that for six days, God is doing this work of creating all that we have seen in this world. How he describes it to us is that he simply speaks things into existence, right? He says something, and then it happens. So for example, on day one, God says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, this world that was once completely dark now has night, and it has day. And each day, as each day progresses, progresses we see that God's creation gets more and more complex. He starts off with water, and then plants, and then he goes on to the sun and the moon, and then he does the birds and the fish, he does the beast of the field, all sorts of things, and then we get to day six. And on day six, this is where God reaches the pinnacle of his creation. He creates man. Now, it's important for us to consider, why would we call man the pinnacle of God's creation, right? Why would we consider it that way? Now, we need to understand that why we say that the, uh, that man is the pinnacle of creation isn't simply because of the complexity of man. Because it's true, right? Our bodies are extremely complex. Some of you sitting here this morning are of the medical background, of medical profession, and you guys especially know how complex our bodies are. But when we consider all that our bodies do and is capable of doing, it would be hard to argue for anything that is more complex or more beautiful in God's creation than our bodies. 
but it isn't the complexity of our bodies that makes us the pinnacle. It isn't even our intelligence, right? I mean, we've honestly been given these amazing minds that are capable of creating and solving all sorts of things. I mean, think about, just for a moment, all that has been accomplished through our minds in just the last hundred years. All sorts of things have been created and fixed in just a hundred years of, of life. It's amazing. But again, it's not even just our intelligence that makes man the pinnacle. Instead, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 27 tells us why man is the pinnacle of God's creation. This is what it says. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, what the scriptures here is telling us is that man was the pinnacle of God's creation because of all the things that God created in those six days, Nothing else, nothing else that he created was said to be created in his image. That statement, that description, that characteristic was reserved solely for man and for woman alone. And so the natural question that we need to be asking ourselves is, what does that even mean, right? Why does that even matter? Why does it matter that we were created in his image? You see, if you were one of the original readers of Genesis, if you were an Israelite, you would almost automatically know what that meant. Because its meaning is actually found in the Hebrew word that's being used here for image. It's the Hebrew word called selim, right? You see, when the Israelites read chapter 1, verse 27, they would know exactly what the author was trying to communicate. You see, selims or images were very common during the time of the Israelites. It was a, a very common thing during their time. It's because the Israelites lived in a time where there were countless number of gods all around them, all types of gods being worshipped by the people. There was the god of fertility or the, the sun god or the goddess of healing, thousands and thousands of gods. And what would happen is that uh, these people would start building these amazing structures, these beautiful structures, these uh, wonderful temples, and each one of these temples were dedicated to a particular God. And what they believed is that the presence of that God could be found in that temple, right? They would walk into a building and, and they would realize or they would think that, that that God resides in that building. And when you walk into that building, at the center of that building would be a room. And when you walk into that room, you would walk in and you would see a selim. You would see an image, an amazingly beautiful image that was created to represent the God of that temple. What I'm trying to say here is that Selims were created so that it would allow people to see with their eyes a God that could not be seen. It was an image of an invisible God. And so when the Israelites read that Adam was made as a Selim or an image, they would completely get it. Because within this beautiful story that we just heard about God creating this wonderful world, this wonderful paradise that he has created, he has placed a selim in it. He has placed an image. And Adam was meant to be an image of that invisible God. Everything about him, his spiritual nature, his relationships, his personality, his morality, his rationality, his creativity, his emotions, all of it, was meant to point back to God, 
to visibly represent to people who this invisible God was. That's why man was created, to reflect God through his life. And you see, that truth is amazingly important for us to know and to understand and to remember. And the reason for that is because it helps us to better understand both the beauty and the tragedy of Adam's story. Because what we figure out here is that soon after Adam is created, God goes on to provide him with everything that he needs to live out the purpose for which he was created. And so the first thing that he does is that God places Adam in a garden, right? And this isn't any type of garden. It was described as a paradise, a place with beautiful trees all around it, trees that produced unbelievably delicious fruit, a garden that had clear blue bodies of water running right through it. You see, God doesn't create a shack for Adam to live in. God is exceedingly generous to Adam. He creates all that he created in those first six, six days for Adam to enjoy. And after he does that, he starts communicating to Adam. And he communicates one rule. He says, listen, look around for a second. Look around at everything that was created, all that you see with your eyes. All of this is for you to enjoy. This is for you to enjoy. And I just want to point out, in the midst of everything that was created, two particular things to you, two trees. The first is the tree of life. And right next to it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both are found in the center of the garden. Now remember, everything, everything that you see in this garden is for you. It's for you to enjoy, for you to use. The only thing is that you can't eat from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat from that tree, because when you do, you will die. God gives his instruction to Adam, and then he continues, actually, being more generous to him. And though God has already given Adam a place to live and, and delicious food to eat, he continues by giving Adam an amazing companion, right? It says that, uh, God puts Adam to a deep sleep and starts to do surgery on him. He opens up the side of his body and he pulls out a rib. And he takes that rib and like everything else he created, he creates this beautiful woman. And what the passage says is, is, is kind of cool. So Adam is in this deep sleep and he wakes up and his eyes are opened and the first thing he sees is this woman standing before him. And what the scripture says is that he actually starts to sing to her. Now, ladies, all of you who are sitting here this morning, you guys know what kind of man that, that's the dream guy, right? That's what happened when you were dating. Uh, they would sing to you, and now not so much. But that's that, that dream guy that you're hoping for, and that's what Adam does. Adam opens up his eyes, and the first thing that he sees is this woman, and she's beautiful. Remember, before this, he had seen a bunch of different things, animals and plants and the sun and the moon, and he never sang to any of those things before. But he sees this woman, and he begins to sing. And he actually says, you are bone of my bone, you're flesh of my flesh. And he gets really excited, and he says, and your name's going to be Eve. He names her. God creates this beautiful companion this wonderful companion to walk alongside of Adam, 
a suitable helper for him. And what we read is that the both of them stood in that garden, in that beautiful garden, and they celebrated the first ever wedding. Some of you have had destination weddings before. You've gone to all sorts of islands or all sorts of uh, cities where there were mountain ranges. This beats all of that. Imagine no better setting than paradise. It was perfect. And the first man and the first woman stood there in that paradise and they celebrated their wedding. And what the Bible says is that both of them stood there amongst each other. They stood there in the garden and they were naked and not ashamed. Now, if our story, if this story was to end there, what an amazing beginning to our genealogy that would be, right? What a great story of our earliest ancestors. But again, you don't have to be a Christian or you don't even have to have read the Bible to know that that story doesn't end there, right? We turn just one chapter and that story quickly goes sour. So we turn to chapter 3, the passage that Melvin just read to us. When we look at chapter 3, we find three major characters in that chapter. There is the serpent, who the Bible describes to us is Satan or the devil. Then there is Eve, and then there is Adam. And chapter 3 says that the serpent was crafty, that he was smart, that he was devious. And that the serpent begins communicating to Eve, starts talking to her, starts to engage her in conversation. And he starts the conversation by asking her a question. And he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that to you? Did God actually say to you that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the way that the serpent misrepresents God's word, right? Because it's actually not at all what God said. God had said almost quite the opposite. He said, look around. Look at all the trees that I have created for you in this garden. Eat of all of them except for this one tree. But the serpent sort of takes his statement and turns it on his head and makes God's command sound unreasonable making it sound like God actually doesn't want you to enjoy anything. He doesn't want you to enjoy anything that he has created. Think about that for a moment. Think about what the serpent is accusing God of. To this moment, honestly, God has been nothing but generous to Adam and to Eve. He's created a beautiful garden with plenty of food and a wonderful relationship. But just in one question, a single question, the serpent successfully plants a seed of doubt into Eve's mind. Because you almost immediately begin to see her confusion. Right? She starts off with her response doing quite well, but as she keeps talking, it's like her response goes south. Eve responds by saying, listen, no, that's not what he said. We can eat of all the fruit from every tree in this garden except one, the one in the middle. Right? And she's got that right. We can't eat that fruit, she continues on to say. Actually, God says that we can't even touch that fruit or we'll die. And you hear that response and you go, you can't even touch it. What do you mean you can't even touch it? Who said that? God, God didn't say, that's not what God said. God didn't say you can't touch it. And it's almost like the crafty serpent takes note of the confusion 
communicated through Eve's response because he immediately responds by saying, you will not surely die. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what the serpent's doing there again? This time, he doesn't beat around the bush, right? He's a, he doesn't just try to confuse Eve. He outright calls God a liar. He says, you won't die. You won't die. Don't believe what God said. God only said that because if you eat of that fruit, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Listen, right now, you're created just to be an image of God, just a mere selim an image of God. But if you eat that fruit, forget being just an image. Who wants to be an image? You can be like God. And as quickly as he walks into the scene, he quickly slips out. And it's almost like everything at that point sort of slows down. Like if I was making a movie out of this scene of the Bible, it would be like, it would be slow motion all of a sudden. And the camera would kind of focus in on Eve and sort of do one of those things where it kind of revolves around her and you're kind of just seeing her at the center of that scene and everything slowed down. Because what's going on now is Eve is standing there considering and thinking about all that the serpent has said to her. And all of a sudden the camera slows down and you see her looking at this tree. And it's like the fruit on that tree is starting to glow and maybe is particularly bright. And she's looking at this tree and maybe there's a rustling going on within her, a hesitation. Maybe she reaches out for a second to grab and then she's like, maybe I shouldn't. But then her eyes, it says, continues to delight in the fruit that she sees on that tree. And as she does that, she begins to think that maybe what the serpent said to her is actually right. Maybe it could make her like God. And so what Eve decides to do is to trust the serpent and ignore what God has said. She takes the fruit that God tells her not to eat and begins to eat it. And it's heartbreaking. You see that happening and it's heartbreaking, but do you know what is the most heartbreaking part of that entire scene? It's not even just what Eve has done, it's what Adam doesn't do. You see, the Bible tells us that all the while, while all of this is happening, Adam does nothing. Adam does nothing. It, he wasn't busy doing something else. He wasn't uh, decorating the home. He wasn't uh, fixing up things for the animals. He was standing there and he does nothing. In fact, he does worse than nothing. He joins her. The one who was meant to love and to protect and to defend his bride stands there silently while watching Eve about to die. The one that was created to be a selim, an image of the invisible God, decides that being an image is just not good enough. He wants to be God. The one who was generously given everything by God, a beautiful garden, plenty of food, a wonderful companion, begins to question whether or not God is holding back from him. 
And in that moment, everything that was good and beautiful, everything that we saw God create in those six days is destroyed. And the effect of sin is immediate. It's almost like a series of dominoes that begins to fall because the first one was pushed. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Look how quickly it happens, right? The same two people who were standing in each other's presence, naked without anything to be ashamed about, are now grabbing for anything and everything that they can find because they need to cover themselves up because they're ashamed. It keeps going in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Remember this, right? Adam and Eve were handmade by God. They were handmade by God. Everything else in the world was spoke into existence. God said it and it happened. But God's love for Adam and Eve was so deep that he handmade them. He formed them. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God that no one else or nothing else in all of creation shared with him. And now this very Adam and Eve that God so loved is hiding behind a bush because they're afraid of their creator. And it happens in an instant. And if we keep reading, we see that sin destroys everything, even their marriage, right? So God returns to the garden after the fall, and he starts probing Adam, and he starts asking him questions to find out what went wrong and what it is that has happened. And so he asks Adam some questions, and Adam, without hesitation, without the bat of an eye, he says, it was her. It was her. You know, the one that you gave me, it was her. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. This dude, right, this dude who just moments ago was singing the praises of his wife, he couldn't stop singing about her, is the first one to throw her under the bus. And just like that, their honeymoon comes to an end, right? Sin has destroyed everything. But it's not even just Adam and Eve's relationship that is destroyed. Sin destroys their children as well. In chapter 4, we read that Eve gives birth to their firstborn, their son. His name is Cain. And then shortly after, they give birth, or she gives birth to their secondborn. His name is Abel. And we read a story where Cain is so jealous of his brother Abel that one day they're working out in the field, right? They're out in the field. They're doing some work. And Cain's jealousy and anger builds up so much that while they're out there in the field, Cain goes and kills Abel. Think about that for a second, right? The first child that was ever born into creation, the first one that ever came out of a mother's womb was a murderer. Think, of, think about the, the progress of sin. It wasn't even slow. It wasn't even just like, oh, he was a liar. He just had a lying problem. Cain was a murderer. The firstborn in this world uh, through Eve was a murderer. Adam's sin, his decision, had corrupted everything, even his offspring. And you're almost like, I have enough. I, I don't want to keep reading, but you keep reading because you get to Genesis chapter 6, 
and it describes for us sort of the, the pinnacle of sin and death on the earth, right? We're told that the, the earth is beginning to become real populated, and as the population grew, so did the presence of sin. The land was filled with wickedness and perversion and evil of all kinds, so much so that God looked down on the earth and that he was so grieved by what he had, what he had saw that he regretted creating man. He regretted creating man. Hear that for a moment. It would be like if you or if I lived such a horrible life, such a disastrous life, that our own parents regret giving birth to you. But they're sorry that you even exist. So what does God do? He decides to wipe out the entire earth, all besides one family. Consider that for a moment, right? This is man and woman created to be in the image of God, a selim, a reflection of who he is. But now they had become so unlike him that he destroys them. And scores and scores of image bearers are drowning in the judgment of God. But here's the thing, right? Even a flood can't wash away or reverse all that has happened by sin entering into this world. It's like, it's like a shirt that you own that you get a stain on, and you're scrubbing it and scrubbing it, and you throw it into the washing machine over and over again. But no matter what you do, you pull it out of that washing machine, and it is still there. It can't be washed away. And this is the same thing. What we find out is that Adam's sin is the ongoing story of the scriptures. Page after page, book after book, we're shown how that one moment in that garden affects every human in every place at all times. Adam's story has affected your story and it has affected our story. And as we're sitting here reading that, that becomes hard for us to swallow. It's like you sign up to Ancestry.com and you begun, begin discovering your, your genealogy and you're reading a little bit about this man named Adam and you get excited at first. You're finding out that this is actually the first one that ever lived in this world and you're reading about Adam and finding out all this information about him and the more you read, it's like you get sick to your stomach. All of a sudden, this amazing Adam becomes more like that relative that you don't want to know you don't want anyone to know about. The, the guy that you're not talking about at all because he is just an embarrassment to your family. And so you read all of this and you ask yourself, listen, Adam's disobedience caused all of this? I mean, that's my ancestor. That's the beginning of my family tree. That's the first person in my genealogy. And it's sort of like the scripture shout out to you, yes. Yes, Adam's the head of your family. Adam's the head of your family. He's the beginning of your story. And as you're sitting there trying to soak in everything that you just learned about this Adam, it's like the scriptures continue talking to you. And it begins to say, but Adam's just a shadow. Adam is just a shadow. There's more to that story. 
You see, that's why we're calling this series Shadows, because every single story in the scripture is actually just a shadow that's a pointing us to a greater story. Page after page, book after book, every single person that we read about in the scriptures is actually getting us ready for a better person. And even the first story, even the first story, the story of Adam, is no exception. Adam is simply a shadow pointing us to Jesus. In fact, the Bible is so clear about the connection between Adam and Jesus that it actually calls Jesus the second Adam or the last Adam. We have an entire passage in the New Testament where it explicitly begins to compare Adam with Jesus, and we find it in Romans 5. And actually in Romans, Adam is referred to as a type of Jesus, as a type of Jesus. What does that mean? The NIV translation uses the word pattern. So in other words, Adam is a pattern or an example or a foreshadowing of Jesus. Let me try to explain to you what, that, what I mean by that. You see, sometimes when we want to understand something a little bit better, we compare that thing to something similar to it, but something that's not totally like it. Did you get that? Not really. Let me try to explain to you what I just said, right? Like, for example, if I were to come up here this morning and put a Big Mac in front of me, right? I place a Big Mac in front of me and I say, go ahead, can you describe this Big Mac to me? What would be some of the things that you would say, right? You would say, it's two all-beef patties. Complete that for me, Keith. <laughs> two all-beef patties with special sauce. Exactly. That's exactly what a Big Mac is. That's what the jingle has taught us. That's what a Big Mac is. And you would be right. But now imagine I go to uh, downtown Philly or to West Philly or wherever that university city area is, and I go to Bobby's Burger Palace and I pick up a burger from there and I bring it back and I place it right in front of you and I say to you, now, how does this Big Mac differ from Bobby's Burger Palace Burger. It could be all sorts of things that you would say, right? You would say, Bobby's Burger has beef that seems a little thicker. Or you would say, Bobby's Burger seems like it has more fresh ingredients. Or you would say, Bobby's Burger, the bun doesn't have sesame seeds on it for some reason. But do you see what's happening here? You notice things about the Big Mac that you otherwise wouldn't notice if you didn't compare it to something else. That's the point. Sometimes for us to see things more clearly, you need to compare it to something similar but different. And that's exactly what is happening here in Romans 5. So I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. And hear this with me. This is the comparison between Adam and Jesus. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You heard that word type there. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have we the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. That was a mouthful, right? Let me try to explain to you or summarize to you just quickly what Romans 5 is saying to us. Imagine that we bring Adam up here and we place him up here and ask the scriptures to begin describing to us who this Adam is. You see, what Romans 5 would begin to teach us is this. In, start, in verse 15, it would say, by Adam's transgression, by Adam's transgression, by what Adam did in that garden, on that day, at that moment, by Adam's transgression, many died. And then in verse 18, it would go on to say, by Adam's trespass, by what Adam did in that garden, on that day, at that very moment, by Adam's trespass, all were condemned. And then we go to verse 19, and it would say, by Adam's disobedience, by what Adam did in that garden on that day at that moment, by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. Hear that. What a sad, sad description. Remember who we're talking about here, right? This is beautiful Adam. This is the, the first one that was ever created on this earth. And now Adam is being described as the source of sin and condemnation and death to the entire world. And what's worse is that his story has become our story. Adam is the historical ancestor of every single person on the face of this earth. You see, this is not a myth. It's not just a good analogy. It's not an illustration. It is a historical fact Adam, the first man, sinned, and in him all sinned. In him all are condemned. In him all have died. And what Romans 5 is trying to tell us here is that the only remedy for what this man is, has done is for another man to enter into this scene, another historical man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to undo all that Adam has done. You see, when we read Genesis chapter 3 and we read the story of this first Adam, it leaves us desperate. It leaves us desperate for a second Adam, a better Adam. And that's exactly what we get. 
the scriptures do the job of showing us how much better this second Adam really is. You see, while the first Adam was created in God's image, the second Adam is God's image. While the first Adam's pride led him to want to be like God, the second Adam's humility made him to become like man. And while the first Adam's act of disobedience brought death to all, the second Adam's obedience brings life to all. And while the first Adam's sin brought condemnation, the second Adam's obedience brings justification. And while the first Adam's disobedience makes the many sinners, the second Adam's obedience makes the many righteous. And while the first Adam was naked and felt ashamed, the second Adam was stripped naked and bore our shame. While the first Adam yielded to Satan in that garden, the second Adam defeated Satan on the cross. And while the first Adam chose to sin at a tree, the second Adam chose to die for our sins on a tree. And while the first Adam deserted his bride and left her to die, the second Adam laid down his life for his bride so that she could live. Brothers and sisters, the first Adam only points us to a better Adam, a truer Adam. Adam is simply a shadow pointing us to Jesus. And this is what Romans 5 is trying to tell us. Romans 5 is trying to tell us that one of these two men, either Adam or Jesus, is the head of your family. As you're sitting here right now, either Adam or Jesus is the head of your family. All of us descend either from Adam or from Jesus. You see, the story of their life has become the story of our life. While all of us are born in Adam, the truth is that not all of us are born again in Jesus. The first happens by birth, and the latter happens by faith. And this is what Romans 5 is saying. He's saying, listen, one of these two men will forever, one of these two men will forever mark your life. And for those who find themselves in Adam, Romans says that your life tells the story of sin and death and condemnation. That's the story of your life. That your life is headed towards eternal destruction, towards eternal separation from the God that has created you. That's what Romans 5 is saying. But Romans 5 doesn't even just leave us there with that bad truth. It actually gives us good truth. That that actually doesn't have to be the end of your story. Romans reminds us that Jesus the better Adam came to start a brand new family, a brand new family where he is the head of that family. And that those who were once known by sin and by death and condemnation can now have their stories rewritten. Your story can be rewritten. That through Jesus, you can now be known as righteous. You can now have life. You can now be forgiven. That's the great gospel. That's the, the only hope that we have, that you and I have,
for this messy life that we have lived, for this messy genealogy that belongs to us. Hear me this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and Adam is the head of your family, God is inviting you to allow him to rewrite your story. He wants to rewrite your story. And he doesn't do that by asking you to be a good person, right? He doesn't say to you, listen, let's just forget about all that has happened, right? I know what you have done. Just try to be better now on. Can you, can you just do that? Can you just try harder? Can you just do better? He doesn't even say to you, listen, can you just fix up your own life? There are some books that I can have you read, some self-help stuff that you can read. Just read that, and things will be better. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, God invites you to trust in Jesus and to allow Jesus' story to undeservingly become your story. It would be like you log back on to Ancestry.com again, and any mention of Adam is gone. He's nowhere to be found on that genealogy any longer. Instead, you find Jesus at the head of your tree. Pictures and stories of Jesus pop up all over, covering your genealogy. And your once messy story is now rewritten to become this amazing story of God's love and his mercy and his grace. And that happens by faith. Not by the things that you do, not by you trying harder. It happens by faith, by believing in Jesus and his gospel. If you're sitting here this morning and Adam is the head of your household, of your own life, God is inviting you to come and to have your story rewritten. But what, if I, what about if you are sitting here this morning and you belong to Jesus? Romans 5 is, is actually encouraging you in a different way this morning. Romans 5 is trying to tell you, listen, you need to remember and to believe that everything that we just said is actually true. That Adam is actually no longer the head of your family tree. That you belong to someone else right now. That Jesus is the head. You know, it's quite possible that you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus, but you're sitting here this morning drowning in the guilt and the shame of your sin. You're overwhelmed and you're hearing this stuff and you're saying, I don't know, I don't know how to believe any of this stuff. I don't even know if this is true. And we're saying, if you belong to Jesus, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. Sin and death and condemnation are no longer the story of your life. You no longer need to live in sin any longer. You're no longer under condemnation. Your life tells the story of the forgiveness of God. Your life is marked by God's love and mercy and grace. Jesus' story, hear this, Jesus' story has truly and actually become your story. He fills your genealogy. He's all over the place. You're not sitting here any longer, sitting as a son or a daughter of Adam. God has made you his child. You're a child of God. 
If you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus, God is inviting you to remember and to rejoice in the truth of who you are, of this new identity. Jesus is just a shadow. Adam is just a shadow. Adam is just a shadow, and Adam's story is simply pointing us to a better story, the story of Jesus and his gospel, that great story. And through Jesus' story, this morning, God wants to rewrite and transform all of our stories. And we're praying, even this moment, that that would be true of all of us that God would rewrite all of our stories, that we would not be known by sin and condemnation and death any longer, but that Jesus would be our head, that we would belong to him, and that we would revel in that truth forever. Let's pray.